This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Hello, everybody. I would like to express my deep gratitude to all of you for inviting me here today. I'm very thankful to the San Francisco Zen Center for inviting me here today to share time with all of you. I was there last year and had a wonderful experience of uh, seeing that a beautiful building turned out to be designed by Julia Morgan and also uh, spending time with uh, the core members of uh, the Zen Sangha. Personally, I'm a big fan of uh, Shindu Suzuki Roshi, the founder of uh, Zen Sangha there. I read his uh, well-known book, Beginner's Mind and Zen Mind, many years ago as a way of learning English as well as also uh, to understand more the profound wisdom of uh, Zen tradition. As you know, he was extraordinary master, impactful human being. As a auspicious uh, synchronicity, and yesterday while working on a book with my editor, I quoted a very humorous uh, anecdote about him. The book that I'm working on is uh, an introduction to Chut. Chut is a very radical practice in Tibetan Buddhism. The literal meaning of Chut is cut and through. That is uh, based on the, the Pranjana Sutras and also the Vajrayana, and then I quoted this uh, humorous anecdote about him while working on book with my editor in Zoom, and we decided to put that anecdote into my book, uh, which will come out sometime next year. The anecdote is that uh, one time somebody asked Shinru Suzuki what is hell? He said, hell is where you have to speak English louder in front of many people. And that's such a humorous uh, uh, story. Uh, every time when I tell this uh, anecdote uh, to my Western friends, as well as also my Tibetan colleagues, the Lamas, uh, everybody laughs. Uh, I feel that uh, that anecdotes uh, not only take us to understand uh, uh, his uh, personality, but also a profound uh, spirit of uh, Zen tradition. Uh, personally, I have been practicing the Parajana Paramita Sutra as one of my favorite liturgy is at the Heart Sutra. When I was a young boy, 
back in Tibet, uh, I went to a monastery and we had to recite many liturgies. Uh, one of the main liturgies that we had to chant every day was uh, the Heart Sutra. And then I somehow ended up liking the Heart Sutra very much, even though I didn't have uh, any conceptual understanding of the lines, those uh, quite enigmatic lines in the Heart Sutra, like no eye, no nose, no tongue, but somehow that sutra grew on me. I kept reciting that sutra, and especially whenever I go through confusion and uh, obstacles in my consciousness, most of them obstacles are happening in our consciousness. I I recite that sutra and then feel that uh, somehow my mind becomes more auspicious uh, and also more uh, liberated. Uh, and, and I know that how to sutra is uh, such a big part of the Zen training. I have uh, friends uh, who are wonderful Zen teachers such as Norman, and I go to also South Korea once every year and have many friends who are Zen monks and nuns. Uh, anyway, today I might like to talk about uh, the ideal or the Bodhisattva archetype, which uh, occurs at the very beginning of the Heart Sutra, the Avalokiteshvara is the central figure in the Heart Sutra. As you know, that uh, the dialogue happens in the Heart Sutra between Avalokiteshvara and the Shariputra. Avalokiteshvara is uh, called the uh, Chandrizik in Tibetan language. Uh, often Avalokiteshvara is uh, being portrayed as a, a bodhisattva. And then the um, bodhisattva is a, a powerful archetype in Mahayana Buddhism that uh, expresses uh, the noblest, uh, the highest uh, principle or virtue or the ideal of uh, uh, humanity, such as uh, absolute love, uh, limitless compassion, fearlessness, courage, selflessness. Uh, people love the, these uh, Bodhisattva archetypes throughout history in Asia so much that uh, and there are these uh, temples being dedicated to the Bodhisattvas. Uh, there are many Bodhisattvas, uh, the eight Bodhisattvas, Avalokiteshvara, Samandabhadra, and so forth. Uh, in ancient China, people decided to 
even designate a whole mountain, usually quite majestic grand mountains, such as Wutetian in ancient China and Omishan as a representation of uh, Bodhisattva. Wutetian uh, is a very beautiful mountain in mainland China where I have uh, never been there. And that uh, mountain is a pilgrimage site, but uh, it is also considered uh, the abode of uh, Manjushara, Bodhisattva Manjushara. And then in Tibet, uh, the Potala, Potala is so this uh, beautiful hill where the Potala Palace uh, is uh, situated. That hill is uh, considered uh, the abode of uh, Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. My friends in South Korea told me that there are also these uh, majestic mountains in Korea, which are being uh, regarded as uh, the sacred representation or the abode of uh, um, Bodhisattvas such as Avalokiteshvara, and Manjushara, it totally makes sense that people chose these uh, beautiful, grand, majestic mountains as a, a board or symbolic board of Bodhisattva because uh, the mind, the heart of Bodhisattva is also majestic, grand, uh, because it's full of uh, love, compassion, courage, and fearlessness. Uh, it feels uh, uh, very relevant right now to bring the the whole idol of a bodhisattva in our spirituality, in our conversations. Uh, my friend uh, Norman, if my memory is correct, wrote a book not very really long time ago, and that has to do with the uh, the path of a bodhisattva, and especially right now, the path of bodhisattva is more relevant than ever when the entire world, as well as this beloved country, United States of America, is in a turmoil in many ways by pandemic, natural disaster, uh, political turmoil, and so much division. Somebody told me that recently a spiritual teacher made this uh, bold statement that uh, there is a mass psychosis happening in United States, I, I don't know whether that is true or not, but it feels that uh, uh, somehow the society is uh, losing heart, in my opinion, and because of the division, political turmoil, confusion are so powerful that uh, the whole culture seems to be quite volatile right now. This is a uh, uh, important uh, moment for us to 
recall the spirit of Bodhisattva. And so we can reclaim our heart and that knows how to love, that knows how to heal, that knows how to unite, and that knows how to transcend all these uh, uh, mind-created divisions, divisions between political parties, uh, divisions between um, ideological groups, divisions between race, and so forth. So, and, and the Bodhisattva is an archetype, but also in the end, uh, the whole spirit of Bodhisattva is that uh, we are invited to be uh, a Bodhisattva. Maybe in the beginning of our spiritual path, uh, Bodhisattva is an archetype, but in the end, Bodhisattva is your true identity. You're the one who are invited to be in Bodhisattva. This was uh, some kind of powerful realization that happened to me when I was uh, young. I loved uh, these uh, Bodhisattvas because they seemed to be kind and gentle, understandable, like Avalokiteshvara. I used to recite uh, the mantra or the name of Avalokiteshvara when I was in Tibet. Uh, the mantra goes Omani Pameham, and then there are all these uh, different forms of Avalokiteshvara. One of them is uh, known as four-armed Avalokiteshvara, and there are all these tankas the sacred pendants of Avalokiteshvara. Whenever I gazed uh, upon those tankas, made me feel that I was very much loved, accepted. I felt that uh, the image of uh, Avalokiteshvara as a kind and motherly, just uh, radiating kindness, uh, love uh, everywhere. So I almost worshipped uh, the Bodhisattvas as a, a idol, but later, as I continued my training in Buddhism, I realized that uh, the whole underlying principle of the idol of a Bodhisattva is that we are asked to become a Bodhisattva or at least to embody the principles of Bodhisattva. And the uh, Buddhist uh, tradition, usually they talk about that uh, the Bodhisattva has uh, two practices, and sometimes they call Upaya and the Prajana. Upaya literally means uh, skillful means, uh, Prajana is wisdom. Uh, many sutras uh, uh, often talk about uh, that if a bodhisattva misses one of them, then her path is incomplete. One of those two practices of bodhisattva, remember, paya and pranjana. Paya, skillful means. Uh, pranjana, once again, the wisdom. Uh, paya, skillful means, has a uh, 
many indications, but today it feels right to interfere in this context by as a, a compassion or the, the big heart, and then um, prajana wisdom is the awakening, the non-awakening to nature reality, the emptiness, mahashinya, the, the no-self, or the dharmata, dharmata, the nature of all phenomena. Uh, uh, Mahayana sutras often remind us that uh, if a bodhisattva misses one of them, and then even though she or he might be making a quite a extraordinary progress, uh, uh, let's say in the realm of wisdom or in the realm of uh, a paya, but then her path is uh, incomplete. Uh, uh, one time I was almost uh, like uh, enticed uh, and almost I was uh, really completely taken over by this uh, almost love of the uh, emptiness uh, and then I would be thinking of emptiness, would be uh, meditating on the emptiness uh, quite often. And then the whole idea of emptiness made sense so much to me that I felt that uh, if somebody can truly be awakened to the emptiness and then that will be the ultimate answer and remedy to everything and then one suffering would go away and one would be totally free, complete and would be happy, which is a two in some sense. And then I start writing poems and my poems are filled with the topics like emptiness, non-duality, dharmakaya and so forth. And one day I presented one of my poems to this Tibetan Lama and he read it thoroughly. He said, it's uh, wonderful that uh, your poem described uh, the ultimate truth, the emptiness of Dharmakaya, but you haven't uh, mentioned uh, anything about compassion. Maybe next time when you write uh, these uh, poems, uh, you might like to include uh, the whole language of compassion and love. And that was a kind of wake up call. Even though he just said that quite casually, but left a big impression in my mind. Uh, I realized that uh, how important to bring together the biological for means and the wisdom, the heart and uh, the inside. On the other hand, uh, yes, sometimes uh, uh, people uh, would be perhaps uh, very much immersed into uh, spiritual practices that has to do with uh, love and compassion, but then they may not have uh, uh, insight, or they may not have uh, even aspiration about uh, uh, true awakening or the wisdom aspect of a bodhisattva. And therefore, bodhisattva is somebody who 
practices embodies these two principles, the heart and the insight, the love, compassion, and then the wisdom, of course, that these two are quite a big topic, but maybe I will talk about a little bit uh, the wisdom aspect of Bodhisattva's path. In this context, the wisdom is not some kind of intellectual understanding or, or some kind of knowledge, because knowledge is always intellectual understanding that can be learned, acquired, and accumulated from listening to somebody or from reading books or from just the, uh, thinking. This wisdom pranjana refers to some kind of non-conceptual awakening to the, the nature of reality, whereas uh, the nature of reality is often obscured uh, by our own thoughts, ideas, and limited uh, concept, and perhaps uh, the 90, if not 99, but 90% of our suffering is actually coming from this uh, fundamental unawareness that uh, our consciousness really doesn't uh, see the way things are. Our consciousness is kind of lost uh, in this uh, false version of reality. This is often regarded as uh, the duality in the Buddhist uh, traditions. Uh, but the, the awakening to the way things are or the nature around that you can be very liberating. I tell you an anecdote how it can be liberating. Uh, one time I was uh, driving with uh, some friends from this giant modern city in South Korea, the Seoul, to uh, Buddhist temple in the mountains uh, to hold a week-long retreat. Uh, then we were driving at some point on this uh, very modern, chic-looking bridge. Then one of my friends, who was a Buddhist monk, uh, said to me in English, uh, luckily he spoke English fluently, this bridge is called Wenho. Wenho is a very famous Buddhist master as well as almost like a cultural icon in South Korea. He said everybody knows this name, the Wenho. And that was quite ironical because the Wenho was a Buddhist master who lived uh, hundreds, hundreds years ago in Korea, but that the uh, bridge is a very modern, made out of steels uh, and very futuristic. It was kind of a little bit uh, somehow uh, strange uh, as well as interesting. And then I asked him to tell me a little bit uh, the story about uh, this uh, great uh, master. He said one time, Wen Ho decided to travel to ancient China to learn Buddhism with a, a friend of his. And then they 
started the journey uh, one day they have been walking all day and uh, got very exhausted uh, ran out of food uh, not only that uh, it was already late there's no village uh, in their sight and then darkness uh, fell they got so exhausted that they couldn't uh, continue walking and then one who just fell on the ground but suddenly felt extremely comfortable and then he fumbled down and he found a container and noticed that uh, there's a liquid in that container he drank it and ate it in his mind it was the most delicious uh, food he ever consumed and then he felt uh, he fell asleep and he fell asleep perfectly and uh, he just uh, felt that he uh, is sleeping on this royal bed um, morning came he woke up he looked around uh, realized that uh, he was sleeping in the cemetery filled with the skeletons everywhere and then he also realized that uh, he was uh, drinking this uh, like blood and pus in a skull cup in that moment he was awakened he decided that he does not need to travel to china to study buddhism because he understood what buddhism is all about and to me this is a very powerful and maybe a little bit a radical anecdote uh, that really tells us what uh, pranjana is what true awakening is uh, because uh, often our consciousness our ordinary consciousness really does not uh, see the way things are and we tend to see the whole reality and our own life in each and every moment through this part distorted uh, perception and and therefore and there's so much uh, suffering in this uh, human realm simply out of that uh, fundamental awareness whereas uh, if you're able to see more the way things are perhaps there will be less suffering just like the story of a Wang Ho and, and therefore in the Buddhist uh, practice uh, whatever we do reciting sutras uh, and meditation they all are in some sense uh, just the methods that can help us to wake up and to realize the emptiness or the nature of reality and, and emptiness is not a concept is not abstract it's a lonely experience of being free from the chains of our limited ideas and concepts then every tradition has been imploring various methods to bring about that liberating awakening as you know in Zen tradition you use a coin in my tradition especially 
the blockchain masters also often use quite spontaneous and improvisational means to wake us up. I, I tell you one another story. At one time, this uh, monk went to study Dzogchen with uh, a Lama, and the Lama tried to show him the nature of reality, and he couldn't understand. And one time, Lama said, How about if you pick up this bag of a barley from my house and then carry that and run fast as much you can to the top of that mountain and then don't look back just keep running all the way to the top of the mountain and then he had um, so much reverence to his master and so he accepted this request he picked up this heavy bag of a body and started running towards the top of the mountain but at some point he was so exhausted that he couldn't run anymore he fell down in that moment uh, he felt that he was wakened and saw the nature reality and he was so happy and that uh, he uh, come back and uh, ran towards the lama's house his uh, master's house uh, and said now i know what nature reality is the Lama, his master, says, I don't care whether you're awakened or not. Where is the bag of barley? <laughs> and uh, uh, all this uh, amazing method that they use to wake us up. Uh, but the, to me, the secret of awakening or the pranjana is a uh, not so much even the meditation, not so much all these absorption uh, techniques, but uh, having this uh, deep longing to wake up, deep longing to be awakened, uh, if you want to say emptiness or ineffable or nature reality, that deep longing is uh, perhaps the most uh, essential secret ingredient for and such a powerful awakening and you can tell that uh, that uh, longing was so important for all these great uh, masters of the past by reading their uh, life uh, stories uh, i used to give you this example imagine that uh, you have been walking in the sahara desert for many days uh, and then you run out of water and food. Eventually, you feel that you are quite tormented by thirst. And then there will be a point where you will lose all your desire, all your ordinary desire, desire for success, desire for comfort, desire to revenge. All those ordinary desires will go away on their own. And then the only thing that will be desire and longing for the water. That's all you perhaps wanted. You want to get to river and drink water. And if you fall asleep, perhaps you'll be a dreaming water. And I often use that as a analogy to describe and that uh, we might like to also invite that kind of longing, just like that analogy, like longing 
in this context of longing for awakening in the same way that you will be longing for water if you're lost in a Sahara desert. And that longing, I think, can take us to the authentic awakening and that longing sometimes happens on its own and other times has to be cultivated. Sometimes I wonder why we go to temple and meditate and keep reciting all these liturgies. I think all the things we do in the Buddhist tradition are just a, a methods to cultivate and to ferment that longing, that devotion. Uh, I even noticed that uh, when I go to temples and practice uh, meditation and recite liturgies, uh, that uh, my longing gets a little bit uh, stronger. Of course, then I lose that. Uh, many monks, nuns uh, in Asia spend whole lifetime in chanting and reciting. What they're really doing is uh, they are learning how to cultivate that longing, longing to wake up, uh, longing to realize the great emptiness or the nature reality. So going to the temple, chanting, early morning, setting, studying, they all basically eventually help to develop this very powerful longing. And once that longing takes place in our consciousness, uh, then I believe that uh, authentic awakening, the realization of emptiness is uh, more than possible. And then some people might think that uh, the whole idea of uh, awakening emptiness is a very stoic, kind of abstract, uh, maybe it's almost like too stoic, but the awakening is very alive and rich. It is extremely joyous according to the Buddhist teachings. And for example, when you read Doha's Songs of Realization by Dzogchen Master Longchenpa, the whole poem is full of joy. I even describe his poems as an ecstatic poem because he exudes so much joy and happiness in his poems that often talk about the ultimate truth, the emptiness, the non-duality, no self. In the same way, that is true for Zen Buddhist tradition. I have been a little bit hunting Buddhist poems for the last, whatever, 10 years. I come across many Buddhist poems and for many reasons, uh, Ryukan is one of my favorite uh, poet and Japanese Buddhist master because uh, at least uh, in my opinion, his poems are uh, full of uh, a joy. Every time when I read his uh, poem, I cannot uh, manage except uh, just be quite joyous. I, I become kind of happy every time when I read his uh, poems. It's very contagious and therefore sometimes I pick up uh, some of his uh, verses, read it and then bring me so much joy. I sometimes read that before I have a meal and so and that joy can take place in my heart. Uh, 
and those uh, uh, often writings and beautiful poems uh, express the joy, this profound, unconditioned joy of awakening. And then the other, remember, important uh, aspect of Bodhisattva's uh, practice is the uh, paya. Uh, in this context, let's uh, call the paya is any part of heart, the compassion and uh, love. And, and right now, this is a time in the history world that needs a lot of a, a compassion and also a courage. And, uh, and there are, I think, ways that we can develop compassion and courage. This is good news. We don't have to be despondent. Sometimes maybe we have a doubt about the humanity and a doubt about ourselves. Uh, I don't know whether that doubt uh, happened to, but many of my friends, even myself, have uh, sometimes a doubt, a doubt about humanity in the whole human world. Uh, many of my friends uh, actually expressed uh, their uh, despondency, hopelessness, uh, about humanity and some of them feel that the whole the human world is kind of descending and there's not so much really bright future and uh, we're kind of losing our integrity our heart uh, uh, it's uh, totally understandable why some people feel so hopeless because uh, what you see in the world is not very encouraging especially if you are reading the news cycle that constantly report uh, all the worst things are happening in the world. Uh, the news usually don't report uh, the good news, uh, the good news about that people are helping each other and there's an act of kindness happening somewhere in the world. I think uh, in reality, there's so many, so many good things happening in the world, even if I just think of uh, yesterday, so many good things happened uh, in my life. Uh, I tell a few things. Uh, yesterday, when I woke up, some of my friends uh, called me. Some Tibetan lamas called me, and I met with them outside uh, while practicing social distancing with a mask. Uh, and then they just uh, poured uh, this. Uh, love and kindness and I can feel that they held me as a their friend and then I was walking in my neighborhood ran into this couple who live not too far away from my house and they're really nice so all I saw was an act of kindness but then I luckily didn't read so much news but if I read news perhaps I could just uh, end up believing that uh, this world is just uh, filled with uh, all the negativities. But the truth is that there's so much goodness happening in the world all the time. And yet, because the culture is so volatile right now and with also the political turmoil, it's very easy for people to lose the hopelessness and despondent, feel despondency and thinking that uh, the whole human world is like failed uh, 
taste or something like that. We should not do, I think uh, uh, we should believe, uh, we should hold the faith that uh, humanity is going to take the right path. Uh, and also we should believe that we are capable of being a bodhisattva. We should develop faith, trust in ourselves. The Mahayana Buddhism teaches uh, the Buddha nature, Hodatadangarbha, in both Zen and Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, I'm glad that I'm talking to many people who are part of the Mahayana because uh, in Mahayana we could say there's Buddha inside you, but sometimes that doesn't work uh, with the other Buddhist. I remember one time as group people invited me to pay a visit to this uh, refuge center in Malaysia. There were many refugees from Burma, Muslims as well as also Buddhists. Uh, my friends, uh, this uh, Malaysian Buddhist Sangha decided to go there and they just extend their kindness to them and they also gave them a donation. So anyway, there was a young man lying on the bed. Interpreter said that, oh, he's Buddhist. And then I joined my hands and said, remember that Buddha is within you. I don't know why I said that. I said, Buddha is within you. Maybe there's some kind of Mahayana Buddhist cliche. I, I thought that would be helpful because I believe that maybe he is a very much lost and really feeling hopelessness. And by saying that there's a Buddha inside you will perhaps give us some kind of is but he was a little bit challenged. He said, I'm Theravadan Buddhist. I never forget that instance. But here, uh, uh, many of us are practicing in the Mahayana tradition. So this is a totally acceptable narrative. This whole idea that there's a Buddha in each of us, the Buddha nature. This is not a theory. There is indeed a Buddha in each of us. And then sometimes it's very hard to see that there's a Buddha in each of us. Other times maybe it will be quite easy to look inside and see there's a divinity, there's a Buddha-ness, whatever you like, or Buddha nature in each of us. I noticed that during like a residential meditation retreat where people meditate for seven days and then that uh, people naturally began to recognize that they're the Buddha in themselves because our mind becomes clear, there are not so much thoughts uh, and we kind of processed all our ordinary emotions uh, simply from the merit of sitting in silence for days and days and then kind of our consciousness wake up eventually and then we began to see and then we began to feel lots of love, compassion, peace. It's very easy to trust uh, and know that there's goodness uh, in each of us. Uh, I even remember that uh, it's very easy for me or at least very comfortable for me to say, oh, there's a goodness in each of us. Uh, 
on the, the sixth day of the meditation retreat. Uh, first day, I try to be a little bit cautious not to say immediately the Buddha inside. Uh, you perhaps many people don't feel that way. But anyway, the point is there is divinity and we need to have a faith in each of us, in, in our ability to transcend, in our ability to become uh, bodhisattva and to love and to hold the whole humanity in our heart and to also become fearless and, and courageous and to face all the situations and sometimes not lose our heart. It's almost uh, time for me to pause, but let me say just a few words. Uh, this uh, afternoon, I'm going to lead uh, another group and we're going to chant uh, the Heart Sutra in Tibetan language, which is part of our usual liturgy. In the Heart Sutra, at least uh, in Tibetan version, there's like this big, uh, like elaborate opening where Buddha was meditating at the Vulture Peak Mountain with monks uh, and then Shariputta stand up and uh, began to have a conversation with Amalokiteshvara. Usually when I recite Heart to Sutra, even I try to imagine that whole some kind of play in my head, uh, like trying to visualize that Buddha was sitting there, Avalokiteshvara was there. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that uh, maybe whenever you recite the Heart Sutra, when you come across uh, the name of Avalokiteshvara, it would be very powerful to remember that Avalokiteshvara in you, there's Avalokiteshvara inside you who is ready to be reckoned. When Avalokiteshvara is awakened inside you, you will manifest in the form of a boundless love, courage, compassion. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for your, your invitation. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge. And this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.